In late spring of 2020, a white policeman knelt on the neck of a black man named George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds, despite his calls for help and pleading from bystanders, leading to his death. This killing by police, along with a number of other high-profile cases around the same time, sparked widespread societal outrage, leading to the Black Lives Matters protests that occurred all over the United States that summer and even overseas. While the large scale of the response to George Floyd's killing by police was unique, the situation itself was far from a singular event. Mainstream white America finally had their eyes open to what many Black Americans and other people of color experience on a daily basis frequent interactions with the police that have the potential to turn deadly. Even when not deadly, interactions with the police can lead to trauma and other negative health outcomes for communities of color, as well as extraordinarily high rates of incarceration. By nearly any metric, Black people and other people of color are disproportionately policed, arrested, and incarcerated. While representing 12% of the U.S. population, Black Americans comprise 27% of all arrests, 35% of juvenile arrests, and 38% of those arrested for a violent crime. About one in four Americans arrested for drug crimes are Black, despite drug usage being equal with white Americans. Once arrested, Black Americans are more likely to be convicted and to receive lengthy sentences. Incredibly and sadly, one in three Black boys born in 2001 can to go to prison in their lifetime, compared to one in 17 white boys. The disproportionate policing of black and brown persons is rooted in our country's history and legacy of systemic racism. Aside from important questions of justice and fairness that we must all address as a, as a society, as epidemiologists, we must acknowledge and understand the dramatic toll that racialized policing can take on the mental and physical health of persons of color and how it can lead to and exacerbate health disparities. On this episode of our podcast, we will be discussing the effect that racialized policing has on the health and well-being of Black Americans and other communities of color. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today, I am joined by John Pamplin, a provost postdoctoral fellow in the Center for Urban Science and Progress at New York University, as well as the Center for Opioid Epidemiology and Policy at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine, where his research has focused on racialized policing. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Awesome, so glad you could join us. And we're also joined by my friend and colleague, Roland Thorpe, professor in the Department of Health, Behavior and Society at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. His research focuses on racial and socioeconomic health dis disparities, particularly among US men. Roland, I'm glad we could get on a podcast together after years of meeting up at conferences and NIH study sections. I am too, this is like a dream come true, I can't wait. Oh, I love it, great. Okay, well, thank you both so much for taking the time to discuss this very important topic. And John, I wanted to start with you since your research is, is directly on racialized pol policing. Um, I noticed some sobering statistics in the intro about the disproportionate policing of black and brown people, but I wanna delve into that more. What else can you tell us that sets the stage on how much of a problem this is for black and Latino communities? Yeah, so 
there are so many things that can be said. And I think, you know, really one of the, the first things that I really wanted to do here is really set the tone of what it means to be over-policed. Like what, what does that mean to be a person or be a community that experiences this interaction with the police? Uh, I think our discipline has spent a lot more time now getting into the weeds of mass incarceration and really focusing on the impacts that people experience once they're convicted of a crime. But I really think the, you know, the average person doesn't have a, a great understanding of, of what it means to be over-policed, even if you're not convicted of a crime. So starting with, you know, obviously stop and frisk has been you know, all over the, the news for probably the last few years. Uh, New York City in particular uh, was really kind of singled out for, for their use of the tactic. And this is the idea of, you know, stopping ordinary citizens, you know, stopping people under suspicion of, you know, we'll say wrongdoing. And, you know, the reality is that this is a tactic that the courts have shown was overwhelmingly uh, conducted for black and brown people, but, but what does that actually mean? So uh, being stopped, being held, uh, being frisked in the public eye, you know, the idea of the, the shame, the stigma that comes along with that, um, the, the idea that a lot of times you get let go. And I think there, there's this idea that, well, as long as you get let go, there's no harm, no foul. But, mm -hmm. you know, what it actually means to every time you walk outside your house, understand that that might be a reality that you have to face. Mm -hmm. um, and these, these encounters, are, are not benign, uh, they're aggressive. Uh, a lot of times there's you know, being pushed against the wall. A lot of people who experience stop and frisk report that they feel like they're being baited by the police. They're being asked to respond so that they have an excuse to, to arrest them. And, and what that does to you psychologically, especially when you know a lot of these people are, are juveniles who experience this um, and that feeling of helplessness. Um, if you, are detained and you're taking taken to uh, a precinct a lot of times you're you're let go without charge but i don't think people understand you know what it really means to be arrested even if you're not charged mm -hmm. um in new york state there's a law that's been passed that you have to be taken from a judge for arraignment within 24 hours of an arrest mm -hmm. but that's still 24 hours that you're sitting there being detained um, so if you had to report to work that evening, mm. that shift is gone. You may have lost your job. If you were supposed to pick up your kids from school, mm. yes, you, yes. you don't have that ability. And so even if you're let go without a charge, it doesn't change the fact that this was impacted your life in, in ways that could be incredibly profound. And I think the last thing I'd really want to point out is that I think for those of us who are fortunate to not experience this personally, we, we think that this is a one-time encounter for these people. Right. And the reality is people in these communities who are over police, this is a, a day in, day out, week in, week out experience. There's there a study where some people reported over their lifetime being stopped as many as a hundred plus times over the course of their adolescence. Unbelievable, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for, I mean, I, I think the way that you, um, communicated the level of gaslighting that it almost feels like, you know, it's like you, you, you can't, you can't win. It's like a trap, you know, especially when you have these preemptive policing where you haven't even done anything wrong and it's just based on suspicion. 
Um, you know, and so I, I think that one of the myths that a lot of you know mainstream America tells themselves is, well, the reason that there's more policing in those communities and that 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 you know more black or brown people are are being stopped and frisked is because they commit more crimes, right? Um, so, but then that just that's creates this self fulfilling prophecy, right? So if you if you basically are just because of the way you look are suspected of committing a crime, then that gives uh, you know a policeman the right to decide that you are about to commit a crime, and it becomes this whole self fulfilling prophecy. Can you talk about you know just you know how does that play out? I mean, it's first of all, it's important to note that one of the main reasons why uh, stop and frisk has been uh, received so much negative attention, deservedly negative attention, is the vast majority of people who are stopped are found to have been doing nothing wrong. Right. Um, and so there's a report from the New York Civil Liberties Union that showed that between 2014 and 2017, 80% of all young Black and Latino boys who were stopped were found to have been doing absolutely nothing wrong, the exact same percent as the white people who were stopped. So right. this idea that, oh, well, it's we're targeting the people who are most likely to commit the crimes. It, it just doesn't bear out in the data. Right. Um, similarly, there is a study that showed that the percent black and Hispanic population in a neighborhood still predicted the likelihood of um, having this type of aggressive stop and frisk style policing, even mm -hmm. after adjusting for crime rates. So basically saying that even if you take the crime statistics out, right. just having a predominantly black and brown neighborhood is still going to predict how much uh, stop and frisk is happening. Yeah. So, so Brian, I'd like to uh, comment, if I may. Uh, John, you know, it, it was, I appreciate these comments. And I was just thinking moments ago that I, I was, I do have an experience of being policed. Um, mm -hmm. About, I think, 15 about 15 years ago, I was in the mall in Columbia and I was walking through a department store and the security guard just constantly was following me for no apparent reason, was constantly following me. I picked up the item I want to pick up. They saw me purchase it. They followed me out of the store. They saw me purchase it. They saw me purchase it. Then they followed me out the store. Then after they followed me out the store, then they tried to do exactly what you said, Brian. They tried to prompt me to say things so that they could retaliate. But I was, yeah. I did have enough poise to say, I have my receipt. And could you tell me what the problem is? Because the problem was that they said, I fit the profile. Yeah. And we've heard that term before. I fit the right. profile of someone that just stole something. And when yeah. they, when he come to find out, it was from another store on the other end of the mall. Yeah. But I but I fit the profile and I had my my receipt. Right. And, so and they that, watched you or and they watched you that, that security person <laughs> watched me pay, get yeah. the receipt, get it back and walk out the door. And so that's that. And, and but at the end of the day, is that because I fit the profile and you're right. Everything you said, John, is right. Then, oh, you're free to go. Yeah, I'm free to go. But then I had to stand here and be embarrassed. Three yeah. people around me, you know, and then everybody's walking. Now, at that point, it feels like the world is watching you. Right. right <laughs> and then you have to deal with that. And then so then can you really go function the rest of the day in this environment? You know, exactly. you really can. And, and that's, quote, unquote, a a good interaction, right? No, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. You know, I'm blessed to have that interaction totally. other than the ones in Georgia, uh, you know, New York and, exactly. and other Ferguson But that being said, whenever you're going through something like that, I would imagine, because I would say that I've never had this experience, you know, um, you don't know if it's going to turn out as one of the good experiences or one of the bad ones. So the level of fear, I mean, you know, one of the things, 
I don't know. I hope I don't do too much of this during this podcast, but just, you know, I just hear so much of this mythology that people tell themselves to justify some of this behavior by policing is that, well, if you weren't doing anything wrong, then what's the big deal? You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, you should, why would you have been upset or scared in the moment if you knew you weren't doing anything wrong? And I think as John and Roland have both pointed out, it's because you never know if they're going to treat you as if you did nothing wrong, or even if they care if you did nothing wrong and right. how that's going to end up correlate with your the outcome of that encounter let's talk about it from a different perspective would you would you have brought that same perspective if i was white right right exactly. right so yeah. would you brought that same, yeah let's talk to, about to it. if i was white would you yeah right so if if you if i was white would i begin treated this way and the yeah. answer is profoundly no because we have a system of structural racism that's embedded in power mm -hmm. dynamics right and mm -hmm. it's always been that way from a historical context mm -hmm. as it relates to african americans and and in america and so i think that's largely some of a lot of what i believe to be driving this we have system and places that advantage the majority and disadvantage racial and ethnic uh, minorities and we've seen this play out in a number of places in the education arena and the the biggest thing uh, that i think one of the biggest drivers is the housing discrimination because it right. created this big wealth uh, wealth gap uh and so mm -hmm. basically this system sets up these different conditions and i think through those conditions is what John has been talking about. And I'm eager to hear more of through the police and through those systems and how mm -hmm. they set up these conditions for people to feel comfortable for us to fit the profile. I also want to go back to a point that you just raised, Brian, about this idea. Well, if, if, if you're not doing anything wrong, right. why is it an issue? Right. And one of the most alarming statistics that, that came from that Civil Liberties Union report was that 24% of stops of people who were found to have been doing absolutely nothing wrong. 24% of these stops of innocent people ended with a police use of force. Yeah. A quarter of them. A quarter. So one out of four times, even if you're doing nothing wrong, you're going to experience police force. That's yeah. And, and not surprisingly based, you know, when you break that down even further, um, among Black people who were stopped, it was 25% of them, specifically among Black people who were stopped who were found to be doing nothing wrong, 25% of them experienced police force compared to 19% of the white counterparts for that. Yeah. So, so this is the feeling that people in these over-police communities understand that it doesn't matter whether you've done something wrong, there's still a legitimate concern and fear of these experiences. Exactly right. And and I think another point is the frequency of it, right? I mean, you know, I think a lot of of white people who have never experienced something like this are, are, are thinking, well, you know, if it's the one time that I encounter the police, I would be able to prove my point, prove my case, show evidence, you know, but imagine if this happened every week or two, you know, <laughs> at some point, you're just like, there's nothing I can do um, to, to not fit the profile, as Roland was saying. And, it, and at some point you get incredibly frustrated. I mean, you see a lot of these videos that, um, you know, one of the most amazing things about what's happening now, and I don't wanna go on too much of a tangent, but is that it's all, it's being recorded now because we all have cell phones. So people are actually getting to see what's been going on for, for decades, more than decades, right? right? Uh, but for the first time, people were having their eyes open to it. And one of the things, again, as someone who has never experienced this, um, one of the things I noticed is how just angry and um, infuriated 
people are when they're stopped by the police. And that's because I know, but I don't think a lot of people know, that's probably like the 20th time that person's been stopped by the police. And it's just like, this again? You know, I just can't deal with this again, right? And like you said, I mean, something that really struck a nerve is if you have to go pick up your kid and they're, even if they're just delaying you to check your license, you know, for for freaking an hour, right? And just making you wait and you're late, late to pick up your kids. That can be so stressful. And then on top of it, you don't know how, you know, if you're going to walk out of the situation. So, um, you know, one of the things though, that before I go on too much of a tangent here is um, another myth again, that I hear is that, well, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to label this as a myth because I don't want to, I don't want to leave the witness, I guess, but, um, but you do hear a lot people saying that the reason there's a greater presence of police in black and brown communities is for the safety of the residents there. You know, it's, it's literally, like they're trying to protect the people who live there. They're not trying to police, uh, protect the people who live outside of those communities from those communities. They're protecting the people in the communities. So is that a valid argument? So the first thing that I would say, and this is something that unfortunately um, I think us in the broader field of public health, we have a, a really bad habit of doing this, this idea of, of telling people in other communities, mm -hmm. you know, communities that we maybe don't necessarily belong to, um, we're telling them, oh, well, this is for them to, to feel safer. Right. Um, as opposed to asking, asking them. Yeah. And the reality is the folks who have asked them, because there have been a number of sites, especially in the qualitative literature that have looked at this, the people of these communities aren't, don't feel safer. Sure, you, you can, there are certainly individuals, and by no means am I trying to make broad sweeping statements, mm -hmm. but on average, police presence isn't associated with feelings of safety for many of these people in these over-police mm -hmm. communities. It, right. It's quite the opposite. And the data themselves don't support it. There, there's not evidence that, su that supports the idea of a higher police presence leading to a lower or reduced uh, crime, mm -hmm. rate of crime. Um, that has actually been shown really strongly with the really large declines in stop and frisk that in fact, crime rates continue to drop as stop and frisk continue to decline. But then you can't ignore the numbers of violence caused by the police. Um, right. So black men have a one in 1000 chance of being killed by police oh, over wow. the course of their life. Um, compared to, um, so I think it, the statistic, it's 96 per 100,000 for black individuals compared to 39 per 100,000 for white individuals. Oh. That, that, that number doesn't support this idea that, oh, well, the police are there to make them feel safer or to be safer. Right. 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 Brian, we saw this when you were here at, uh, at Hopkins when the, in Baltimore City, when the crime mm -hmm. rates were uh, unbelievably high and then the, the, the different neighborhoods, they were being policed, but the homicide rates were going up every, almost every day or every other day you see somebody get killed in the neighborhoods that were quote unquote being yep. policed, right? Yep, absolutely. And same deal here in Chicago where I yes. live now, same deal in Washington DC where I grew up. Um, you know, it's all, it's everywhere I've lived. It's been the same story for the whole length of my life. And you can even, you can take it a step further. I mean, um, even if we, cause, and this is, I'll say in my, my conversations with folks. So kind of coming back to the, the, you know, the myth that you pointed out before about the idea, well, well, if it's because of more crime, for example, mm -hmm. well, if you look at the rates of 
unarmed men killed by police, mm-hmm. the rates are 3.2 times higher for unarmed black men compared to unarmed white men. So it's not mm-hmm. even about quote unquote justifiable right. police killings. Yeah, really good point. So Roland, you, you mentioned a little bit about the historical context that has led to over-policing of minoritized communities. Can you, and I know we could talk about this for three hours because we can go back to slavery, you know, but can you just set the stage a little bit? Because I, you know, what's always shocking to me is how little people know about the history of policing in this country and how it's so tied to segregation and, and goes all the way back to slavery. So, you know, briefly, can you just tell us a little bit, and you were mentioning housing um, yeah. divides and stuff like that. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, my, my take, I think all this goes back to structural racism. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, that's a, that's a system, it's a way that systems uh, have been set up to advantage uh, the privilege and disadvantage those who are not, who are less privileged. And so, and it, that system in itself produces differential conditions from which people operate, right? And one of the one of the biggest uh, structural racism, one of the biggest results of structural racism, I think, is this whole notion of racial residential segregation that we have mm-hmm. in, in the United States. That has that itself, this residential segregation, it puts a lot of uh, a lot of the urban inner city blacks tend to live in high concentrated crime areas, you know, have poor quality housing, poor school, poor uh, public school systems. And, uh, and then they have fewer transportation opportunities to go out beyond those areas to the to the suburbs. And so I think those are some of the structures. Those are some of the ways in which structural pathways in which structural racism can tend to start to impact the impact the health and the well being of people of color, and also within those nestled within that, particularly uh, in these highly segregated areas, goes back to what John was articulating earlier. You get now you get to where these communities are marked as you know over crime areas, high latent crime areas, when in fact they're not. You know, most of the time they're not. You know, when you hear John has presented us with some outstanding statistics to the counter, um, and I think the 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 greater uh, community doesn't hear these statistics all the time. It's going off what what you've described earlier, Brian, as as MISC. And I think uh, one of the things that other things historically has been put in place as laws, right, is one of the tools that have been used to create these differential conditions for structuring these systems. One of the most well-known uh, laws and tools to, to create a system is the Jim Crow whole Jim Crow era. And as the Jim Crow era was born out of the South from 1875 up to 1964. Um, And during this area, the government, the federal government used laws to structure employment systems, education systems in a manner that benefited that, that majorly benefit whites and then benefits blacks. And it created these deteriorating conditions by which health was impacted, wealth, and then it, within those laws, they were created to create power dynamics and to keep uh, people of color and blacks and their communities oppressed. And that's that's the system. Although we no longer, since we went through the civil rights era, we no longer have these laws in place. But residential mm-hmm. segregation, you still see the lingering effects since 1968, since it was outlawed. Mm-hmm. And and I think we still have some of these. Then you have white supremacist groups who still think they're in the dominant position, and they don't. 
and they feel that the way to keep it down is for people to to keep people oppressed is to keep this 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 power dynamic over you and each time we have a black man die under uh, wrongfully die at the hands of the police and they get acquitted it just adds fire add fuel to the fire and supports the system the structural racism my, my vivid example is rodney king rodney mm-hmm. king was probably the first one on tv that you really saw on you know on tv and they and then the the jurors acquitted and that just supported the the, the structure that was in place so it's okay exactly. to kill people and, and, and move forward. And that has been perpetuated. So at some point, and I'm hopeful we'll get to at some point in this conversation, what can we do or what can we think about oh, yeah. to move forward from the situation we're in? Totally. Uh, that's what I want to get to towards the end, because we right. really need to talk about that. But, um, you know, thank you so much for laying that out. But I, I and I'm by no means an expert in this, but I do read a lot about it. Right. Um, and I've been learning more about how the police force, the modern police force, as we know it, grew out of that Jim Crow era, as I understand it. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I don't know, can you t- talk about that a little bit? I mean, th- there's a very direct relationship between the modern police force and the enforcement of those laws that you mentioned in Jim Crow that isn't a coincidence. Right? No, it's not a coincidence. Uh, the, the police force, as we have around the country today, they emerged out of the Jim Crow laws, and they took them from the South, and they moved forward, and, and, and they, they grew these police forces, and they modeled the police forces from the South up to the North, and they still, and it still is in existence today, and as you can see, the stronghold that you think about and how people, if you look closely, I know we get caught in our emotions because it is frustrating every time you turn on the TV or every other time you see something wrongfully happening. Two uh, unarmed black men and and, um, and and young black and older black men. But I think one of the things that I think we don't understand well is how do we move forward with this? So this, this it's not, Brian and John, it's not, coincidental that you got half of the country want to defund the police and the other Mm -hmm. half don't want to defund the police. Those other half don't want to defund the police now understands they're part of the group that came from, I believe they're part of the group that really came from this Jim Crow area that where this was structured. Brian, I'm glad you brought that point up because no one really brings that point up. It is a, Mm -hmm. the modern police system that we have today is a direct result from Jim Crow. And I'm glad you highlighted that. Thank you for saying that. And I, and and to me, I've, one of the reasons I feel like we can't get past this problem that is because we just are turning a blind eye to that fact. You know, I mean, it's so funny to me. Uh, funny is not the right word, but ironic that people say, geez, why is it that police over, you know, over police certain communities? I'm like, they were set up that way. I mean, like this is, that's the structure that was put in place from the beginning. So it's not just a, a, a random result that happened. It's something that was set up that we need to somehow change, right? And I, I would I would add to that because you know just like Roland discussed the the importance of laws and, and this idea of the laws that set up you know residential racial res- residential segregation. The the laws are still a tool now, and, yeah. and they're incredibly influential in the work that I do now. That's around substance use, so you can think about the. Rockefeller uh, minimum sentencing laws around cocaine, which created a, a, effectively a racial segregation in terms of how we policed uh, cocaine use, right? Whether it was the powdered uh, cocaine use right. that was, you know, cost more money, was associated with, you know, white Wall Street, 
versus crack uh, crack cocaine form costs less money associated with uh, low-income Black folks. And creating these sentencing disparities, despite the fact that at the end of the day, it's still cocaine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even to the way that we we think of uh, opioids now and versus when heroin was having its kind of earlier heyday uh, within the Black community. Um, and even uh, some of the work that I'm doing now around the way we're rethinking marijuana. Yeah. And so uh, I actually have some work with a, a fellow postdoc, um, Spruha Joshi, that we're looking at what's happening with marijuana arrests as the as different jurisdictions are changing their laws, you know, introducing recreational, legal recreational use. And one of the things that is coming from this, this work is when legalization happens, you see a sharp drop in the number of possession arrests. That makes sense because now it's, it's legal, legal for small amounts. Mm -hmm. And that decreases disparities at first because most of those possession charges were for black folks. Mm -hmm. But what we're seeing shortly after that is other marijuana charges, other marijuana arrests start to creep up. Oh, arrests wow. that weren't being made before, all of a sudden they start picking up and almost exclusively within black folks. Unbelievable. And so it's just, the laws are becoming moving targets. It, it, and they have been for, for the entire existence of policing effectively, it's changing the laws that help benefit the structures that they want to maintain. Absolutely. So that's so interesting because it's not just you know criminalization that's racialized, but decriminalization is also racialized, right? You know yes, how yes. you don't yes. enforce the law, um, all of a sudden there's a disparity there. Um, and in, in many, I mean, that's so interesting that you're you're studying that. It's almost like a natural experiment, you know, like or you could see like when you remove a law and all of a sudden something is legal, are you still seeing disparities in who's getting arrested? Yeah, and not no surprise. The answer is yes. Um, but but it's you know like it just really again uh, targets some of the myths that you know well if you're just not doing something wrong then you won't get it. well okay but this is not wrong anymore supposedly this is this is legal how right. come I'm going to jail for it yeah wow um so you know we do before we get too far into all of this I, I want to make sure that we talk about this because this is an epidemiology podcast um you know there are direct and indirect health outcome effects so you know of racialized policing it's not just dying which is a obviously the, the worst outcome right but even as you as you talked about john so much in the beginning um even if you don't get brutalized by the police you still have there's so much mental health anguish and trauma and, and the, that threat hanging over you that that leads to direct health outcomes both mental and physical health outcomes. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the health outcomes from racialized policing? Yeah, so, you know, I think the, the first one that comes to mind, um, I, I think of this as the, what I call the, the low hanging fruit of these mm -hmm. is, you know, policing is a chronic stressor for, for folks who live in these communities. Um, we, we've talked about it already that the day in day out concerns uh, for people feel, being afraid to leave their house, the, the concern for parents. I mean, that's something that we've heard about a lot in the last few years of having to be afraid for your child to be able to go out and go to school. Wow. Um, and so when we think of the inf 
impact of chronic stress on, on for example, allostatic load, when we think of cardiovascular health and the influence of, of chronic stressors, you know, I think it, it's um, certainly a, a, a really large concern is, is just what the, the stressor influence of, of being overplaced is. Um, the next thing that I'll mention, which is an, an another allusion to some of the work that I'm doing right now, uh, is we're looking at the effect of placing on opioid overdose. And so one thing that I think is not well considered and, and we're trying to uh, really hit the ground running with this is you know, a lot of states have passed something called a, an overdose Good Samaritan law. And the idea is that if you or if you witness someone overdosing, if, if you're using an opioid and, and a friend overdoses, we want you to call 911, we want you to get them help and we're gonna give you some protections uh, from the law for, for holding, you know, if you have, you know, heroin on you, if you have needles, you know, we're not going to charge or arrest you. And this entire mechanism is based on having faith in the police. If certain communities have been conditioned not to have faith in the police, you know, there's not a lot of reason to expect that these these interventions that are supposed to help opioid overdoses are going to work in those communities, and that that's something that we're doing now. And then the the you know we could probably spend a whole episode talking about uh, the impact of COVID nineteen in, in jails, and um, I know I have friends who are public defenders, and one of the things that they're really concerned about is in New York City, uh, Rikers Island was in the process of, of being shut down. It was the numbers of folks incarcerated on Rikers Island were at all time lows. Um, we're right back up there. Now, <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic, the numbers of, of people currently incarcerated on Rikers Island are through the roof. And, and this is a dormitory style facility. There's no isolation, there's no social distancing here. And, right. and the numbers for COVID in, in incarcerated um, in, in jails have been appalling. Uh, the last thing I will say and is mental health, you know, anxiety, trauma, there, there've been a, a number of studies it, and, you know, I would still say it's understudied, but, you know, there, there've been systematic reviews that have shown association with uh, interactions with the police and, and increased anxiety symptoms, increased depressive mm -hmm. symptoms, increased experiences of trauma. Uh, there've been, there's been a recent study that came out that looked at, um, specifically depressive symptoms as a result of harassment. And something that I think we can't undersell enough is not, you know, when we talk about over-policed communities, it's not just, you know, people of color, it's not just black communities, but it's also communities that have, are disproportionately suffering from mental illness and disproportionately mm -hmm. suffering from substance use issues. Mm -hmm. Right. And when you, when you take these people and you throw them in a cell, uh, you're interfering with their ability to get treatment, for example. So there's a whole thing about people who are on medical assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. You put them in jail, they're no longer able to get that. Um, there are alarming numbers about the number of people shot and killed by police when suffering from a mental health crisis. I think uh, there's data in New York City that over a five-year period, 16 people were killed by NYPD when they were responding to a mental health crisis. Yeah, that's um, the whole... it's it's staggering. Right. 
Yeah, thank you. I, thank you for laying that out so well. I mean, I, I think that that connection with stress is really, um, and, and, you know, Roland, I know this is, this is your area of research is, is that racism, stress, uh, you know, connection. And then, and then what comes from that in terms of obesity, diabetes, I mean, so many of the health disparities that we see in this country can very directly, I believe, be tied to the stress of living in a certain situation in, in terms of um, over-policing of, of the community that you live in. Would you expand on that a little bit, Roland? Yeah, before I do that, I, you know, I was just reminded when John was uh, talking, I was just reminded, I think yesterday, there's a, a black man in Orange County that got shot. Sam, I think his name is Clemente, Sam Clemente. In, in LA, he was fatally shot and he, was, uh, he wasn't doing anything. And he was, you know, you look at the video, it was just like what we described earlier, Brian, when you say he was prompted to do certain things. So then the cops uh, responded. Yeah, uh, responding to your, it's just, I, it's just a bad, you know, it's, it's really troubling to see, see some of these things and, and think we would have moved far along now that we're in 2021. 20, uh, I think part of that issue of what we're seeing now is that, you know, is that, and somebody mentioned it earlier, the, the lack of faith we have in the police. We have a lack of faith in police because the police has set up a system whereby they have been getting away with these things forever and ever. And so they're, they're now, it's normal routine to them, irrespective if there, there's no, there's very few ways in which these police officers are reprimanded, right? Mm -hmm. So you can kill somebody when, when in Milwaukee and you possibly get a job in Dallas. You know, and it never really, it never really follows you too much. There are not many um, measures of accountability that put in place. And then when you constantly see these events, these horrific events occur, and then you see the police get off. And then, yeah. so why would we, you know, why would I have faith? You know, mm -hmm. and then and people say, why didn't you just stop and talk? Well, I take my chances running because I don't, if I stop and talk, I've stopped and talk. I've seen people stop and talk and how yeah. they work. You know, see people, the, the police shot the guy in the back in Atlanta in the Wednesday, Atlanta, Georgia, in the Wendy's um, mm -hmm. Rats parking lot. So I think, I think those things, uh, they, they, they're, that's pictures of, and, evidence of how we lose faith that also ties into what you wanted me to address Brian mm -hmm. is this notion of stress you keep seeing this over and over and over again you keep seeing it it does create this imprint um and that we may not think it has a, a toll on us but I, I think we I think it does at least I know you know, you, you can't watch with so much of it. Then you have to say, I got to, you know, I, I, I can't look at this anymore because I, I got to, you know, you find yourself saying that you got to decompress. But right. some of us are in a place where we can we can decompress better than others, right? Yeah. The people that live in those com impoverished communities, when they're trying to decompress, they probably have high sirens mm -hmm. uh, in their neighborhood and there's something always going on, gunshots are flying off all mm -hmm. the time. And that those environments, in and of themselves are stressful and if the environment is stressful it's going to have an impact on on how you function in life because your environmental condition constrains your individual choices mm -hmm. right and so in in that sense we you know it goes back if you sit back and just start taking it from a my myopic of view and you start dialing back to this macroscopic view we go from individuals 
then we go these laws that are put in place that John has talked about policing and locking people up for not having the the right amount of drugs you know now we can lock you up we can't lock you up for that anymore but we're, now we're going to go up and find the next law that works for us and just think about it from a different perspective what does that do for the child that sees their daddy or yeah. the mother that sees their the 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 father of their children yeah. getting treated this way and the, the ones that haven't done anything wrong how do you explain that later on and what about the child's psyche right mm -hmm. we're talking well, i know we're talking about the, the black man but it's brought i want people to understand that this over policing is a societal issue because the every time we take a man out of society mm -hmm. it impacts our community mm -hmm. right and it, and it really really it's really um this is really very very difficult to see that and watch and think about it. Wow, that could have been my cousin or why that could have been my brother, you know, and things like that. So I think we need to think about that. And the stress pathway, is, it's just, it's always this low level of stress. So for example, if I go into any mall, I'm now on pins and needles that 15 years ago, right? So I don't, you know, I want to make sure, yeah. yeah, it stays with you. Yeah, mm -hmm. I want to make sure that I'm not doing anything right. You know, I don't want to make sure that I don't, I don't do anything to, to make anyone think that I'm in here trying to, um, trying to steal anything, which I, that's not my goal at all, but I don't want them to think that I fit a profile, right. you know, from, from trying to do that. And it does have impacts over time. These experiences mm -hmm. over time, they accumulate over the body. And then they, they have these uh, wear, and tech, wear and tear effects in combination with, your, your, your environment that you live in. And it's, it's all about, I believe it's all about the weathering hypothesis that, our, that Arlene Geronimus that has, has so eloquently articulated back in the early 90s. Can you tell us about that hypothesis? Yes, it's a hypothesis where Arlene Geronimus said that uh, African-Americans, she first uh, talked about African-Americans actually having earlier health declines. And a lot of those earlier health declines are due to some of the social and environmental conditions in which people live. Largely, the, the work that she done was in uh, inner city Detroit and mm -hmm. the data sets that she used, she typically used data sets and looked at people that, that who are in high impoverished um, uh, groups. So, mm -hmm. and they have these earlier health, she showed that these earlier health declines occur among blacks versus whites. And she also showed in a, in a study that there, um, Black, blacks typically have shorter telomere lengths than whites and, you know, telomere lengths are a marker of uh, biological cellular aging. aging. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, it's, I know there's a movement to, to, by some researchers to see racialized policing as a social determinant of health that we should study in public health. Because um, in many ways, it seems to me like the missing peace often. You know, we, we know that there's higher rates of diabetes, of obesity, of all, I mean, just a host of health disparities we could talk about in Black communities, in low-income communities. And um, often, you know, we don't, we kind of miss the mechanism. You know, what is, what is the cause of all that stress? It's not just being poor. It's also, as John has laid out so eloquently, that just the threat that you're facing every time you step out of your door and what, what that, you know, how that, the wear and tear of that would work on your system. I was just seeing, I just saw a, um, a study yesterday that looked at experiences with racialized policing, um, experiences with the police being directly correlated with waist size, right? So people, who black men who experienced more interactions with the police had 
larger waist sizes. And that, that almost seems like a, wow, that's a weird connection until you think of like the, the larger pathway of stress that, that you know, that that entails. Um, so, yeah. Uh, it, it, it makes sense because when you think about the waist size, it's correlated with a lot of the chronic conditions, yeah. you know, so it, it, it kind of makes sense. But then again, it's another stigma that we have to, we, we, we another stigma uh, exactly. that we go to, right? And so now, right. so what profile am I really fit? Am I really, he's the fat black guy, so let's roll up on him, right? Right, whether you have, whether you have anything on you or not, it's just that, um, but when I've looked mm -hmm. across what has gone on with black men in, in the last five years, I, you know, the, the waist size certainly has not not been the biggest issue, right? The biggest issue is me that, that I've seen. Mm -hmm. I've seen black men, the ones that were unarmed and not doing anything. I've seen them just mm -hmm. going through, you know, the, the guy in Georgia, um, he was running. He was out Not running. He was yeah, yeah, he was out running, you know? Yeah, he was jogging. Jogging, right. Yeah. And he's, obviously, he thought he could run in that neighborhood, right? So he, he felt that the neighborhood wasn't yeah. over police, right? So he didn't have this fear, at yeah. least in that neighborhood, that, you know, he couldn't go outside and, and, and get some exercise. And, I mean, it's important to point out there, you know, <laughs> Roland, you talked about earlier about all this boils down to structural racism. And, you know, Amara Arbery's case is a prime example of structural racism in the sense that it was the same structures that allowed individuals who, frankly, were not on, on, on duty they weren't police even officers. on duty police officers. They just were acting like they thought they were, right? Exactly. Right. Um, and obviously that goes back to uh, Trayvon Martin's case as well. Yes. You know, right. there, there, these people who feel emboldened to yes. act as law you know, agents of the law, so to speak, mm -hmm. when they feel like there is a, you know, a young black or brown person, you know, do, who's out of line effectively. Right. Yeah. And another piece of that structure that we haven't talked about since you brought it up, John, is think about when they wanted to charge them. The DA in that county didn't even want to charge. So they had to go get other DAs to press the charges. Mm -hmm. Why did the DA want not want to do it? When is that is your job? Because I believe they all participate in the same structures, right? That's we right. all hang out at the same place on Saturday and Sunday, but Monday through Friday, we have a different hat on where we can try to exert power over other people that we think still should be oppressed yeah and let's let's um ex let's really delve into that structural um aspect you know I, I, again another common argument that i hear voiced all the time even by politicians i mean there's you know it's what what frustrates me so much is that it's not just kind of common folk it's like the people who are making our laws that, that express some of these myths um but you know, there's this idea that it's just a few bad apples, right? You know, it's just it's just certain individual racist cops that are acting bad, and you can't impugn the entire police force for these few bad apples. If we just get rid of those few bad apples, um, you know, things will be okay. Well, first of all, as Roland you just pointed out, we don't actually get rid of the bad apples. So even if that were true, the bad apples right. just just get moved to another batch of apples. Um, right but make them bad <laughs> exactly right yeah right um but i mean even if they did get removed it i i mean can can one of you speak to this idea that it's just a few bad apples rather than a structure that's put in place yeah i i think there's you know i i wish i could remember the the video i was watching where i heard this quote but i think it speaks to it so well um Going back to this idea of, of stop and frisk, for example, where um, you know more than 
80%, depending on the year, as many as 90% of people stopped were found to be doing absolutely nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. In what other city agency or any job at all for that matter, could you have a success rate of one for 10 at your job and not be <laughs> told this isn't working out? Well, academia with grant writing, but we'll just- Fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. But, but now we digress. <laughs> yeah, now I digress. But the, the idea here, you know, at the height of stop and frisk, there was over 680,000 stops in a year in New York City, of which over, uh, I think the, it was somewhere around 53, 54% of them were of black people, despite only being about 23% of the city's population. Mm. How many bad apples does it take to rack up those stats? Yeah, exactly. Right. That's right. There's a lot of bad apples to get 68,000. Right. Yeah. So at that point, you're talking about following an explicit procedure. Yes. Right. And that is the point. That is, that is the piece that needs to be hammered home over and over and over again. I, you know, I hear people talk about, oh, well, but what if the cop was black? It's not about the individual race of the cop. Not, not when they are following the procedures of the broader structure, the broader system. It, at that point, it, it becomes relatively moot. Sure, the, the individual may also have malice in their heart uh, for people of color, but it, it really doesn't matter at this point. Like if you look across the board, across the agency, across the city, you know, the approved protocols of policing are discriminatory. They are systematically discriminatory against people of color. And that is when the agents are following the guidelines. Thank you. That's exactly uh, what I think needs. That message just will not, I think people turn a blind eye to it, honestly. I think a lot of these politicians advancing the bad apple uh, viewpoint kind of know that's the case and they just don't want to accept it because it means major changes that have to be made, right? So let's talk about that. We only have about 10 minutes left. So Roland, you wanted to talk about what can we do about this? So what, so let's talk about it from two levels. You know, what can we do as epidemiologists? First, let's talk about that. And then what can we do about it just as people, just as citizens? Yeah, so I think one of the, uh, I think one of the things we can do as, uh, so I think the way to eradicate this is that that we're going to have to, create some evidence base that can create policy relevant solutions, right? I think we're gonna have to do some of that. But I think we also what we're also gonna have to have is we're gonna have to have incidents that can really shock people in position to make some changes. I'll give you a perfect example. January 6th, United States Capitol. That's a perfect example. No one would ever thought that white people white people, not black folk, white people would go in and take over the Capitol. They right. never thought it. But when they thought that when they heard the black people were coming, they had the National Guards on the steps of the Capitol City, mm-hmm. you would not get in here. So mm-hmm. now, well, that's what I mean. We need to have something that shocks them. So now there's a whole different thought process about the security and how we address, how we go after people now and the security of the Capitol. I think we're going to have to have some 
I think it's going to have to be major regarding what people are going to have to have some policies reform, major reforms, just like what mm -hmm. John was talking about this thing. The protocols are set up to be raised. They're going to have to be rewriting of those. But when you rewrite those, they're going to have to come into place where you're dismantling something and building up something up where there's trust. And I'm not sure that we're going to see that in, our, in my lifetime. I'm not sure we're going mm -hmm. to see that. It's going to be tough. But I think we're going to have, I think it has to be a top down and a bottom up approach as well at the same time. I think we're going to have to start um, thinking about what is it that we can do as people to make it better, make society better. And not, black people can't do it on their own. People of mm -hmm. color can't do it on their own. We've been trying for years and we cannot do it on our own. And we need allies to help change these structures. And until we get that, I don't think we're going to see major improvements. Residential segregation is another example. It's been, you know, over 50 years and here we are still seeing these lingering effects. And I, I'll stop there because I think I see John nod and I think he's he's bubbling up. Go ahead I want to hear us. John's thoughts, but I also okay. want to follow up on one of the points you made. But go okay. ahead, John. I, I think one thing that we need to do in, in epidemiology is acknowledge where we've been a bit complicit. Mm -hmm. I think that we are a discipline that on average, tends to lean towards the, the idea of incremental change. Mm. Um, and I think this is a system, this is a, this is a situation that we're not going to incrementally change our ways out of it, change ourselves out of it. And I think that, um, you know, policy relevance is important. And I, I agree wholeheartedly that we need to continue to push that evidence base, but we also need to acknowledge that you know, maybe if we want to see something that's radically different, that, you know, it's going to take a, a intervention, a proposed intervention that that's a bit out of the box. And, and I think that to not even consider having that conversation is, is where I think that we do the broader society a disservice. John, you, you were getting exactly at, at the question I was going to uh, toss at Roland, which is, um, you know, what we do as epidemiologists is build an evidence base. But in this case, how much evidence do we need? I mean, it's a mountain. Not, not that we don't need more evidence. We do. Okay. But I mean, the statistics just in this podcast alone that have been thrown around. I mean, it is a, it's a one, it is a clear, clear, um, uh, you know, picture of, of disproportionate over-policing of certain communities, not based on um, justified, quote unquote, reasons for it, okay? Right. And, and I don't know how much more evidence of that we need <laughs> to convince people. Because again, I think people are turning a blind eye to it. I mean, I think people right. know, and, they, and some people in power want it to stay that way. So I'm kind of where John is, not to, not to end on a... <laughs> That's no, no. to get too radical at the end here. But, you know, what can we do aside from building evidence to, sh to maybe sh build evidence about what changes can happen that actually will result result in changes? So, so when I say build evidence, I know that there's evidence there and I don't want to discount the evidence that is already that's before us. But mm -hmm. taking the evidence, one thing that I think that epidemiologists could do mm -hmm. better taking the evidence and disseminating and packaging in a way that the layperson can read it. Everybody don't have access to American Journal of Epidemiology. Right. Everybody don't understand what's in American Journal of Epidemiology, right? So I think that 
what we need to do is we need to do a better job at disseminating, translating and disseminating information and getting it into the hands of people who can then make these bold um, interventions that John mentioned, John stated, make a bold intervention or put together a, po a, a policy solution that may go before the hill. Uh, the other thing are in the local or state municipality as well. The other thing real quick is that I think in addition to doing that, I think what we need to do is, and it's, it's we need for people to acknowledge that there's some wrongdoing. There's really hadn't been this moment, this moment of reckoning, of healing of what has occurred it, in a broader sense or in the sense of policing. We need to take that moment and, and move forward. I think a lot of the consternation is that no one has ever just stopped and said, you know what, this has been wrong. And, you know, no one's really done that. And I think, you know, there, and there's talk about reparations, and all that going on now, but no one has, has ever done that. And I think to do that and have a frank and real conversation around that and put together a plan how to move forward and get community advocacy and advocacy and activists involved mm -hmm. to move forward. We know what we need in our communities. Don't tell us what we need in our community. We know what we need in our community. It's just that the way resources have been allocated previously hinders us from doing that. Thank you. Okay. All right, John, final question. What, what, okay, so what can I do as someone listening to this podcast as just an everyday person, maybe not an epidemiologist, to make a difference about racialized policing? So I, I think there's a couple of things you can do. I think first and foremost, you can, you can actually take a moment to listen to the folks who experience this. And, you know, I don't just mean experts in, in, in the educational means, although that, that's fine and good and all. Um, I think what we have a, you know, I think Roland alluded to it earlier. Um, actually, it might have been you, Brian. You know, how long have, you know, black and brown men, women, trans folks across the board been screaming that, hey, we're being treated unfairly. And it's only now thanks to cell phone videos that, you know, the broader right. society is like, oh, oh, maybe, you know. <laughs> so I guarantee you there are going to be more situations where folks are going to be reaching out, screaming, saying, hey, there's a problem here. We need help. Mm -hmm. And the first thing you can do is like, you know, have, have a, a moment of humility to say, you know what, I'm going to hear them, I'm going to listen to them. And then I'm going to, I'm going to act and I'm going to act not based on, you know, solely what I might think needs to be done. Ask them, how can I help you? How can I help mm. this cause? And, and that might mean doing some research that the, the point is be open to the fact that your role in this isn't going to be passive and it's not going to be easy actively be engaged in it and listen to what people are saying that they need for help. Great. That, I think that's a great place to end this. Thank you both so much. Thank you, John. Thank you, Roland, for joining me in this enlightening conversation. Um, I would also like to also thank Sue Bevan for producing this episode. And before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a, a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is scheduled this year to be held in San Diego in June of 2021. That sounds amazing. I know my fingers are crossed that we'll actually be able to have it in person, 
but of course there's a chance that it won't be. And there will definitely be a virtual component at the very least. So anyone can attend virtually. Um, membership also gets you access to the SCR library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out, find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you.